Brandon. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to have you guys with us. This summer, we have been studying the book of Proverbs together. Proverbs is all about helping us grow in wisdom. And Proverbs defines wisdom for us as skill in godly living. A lot of times we think that wisdom is about what you know. It's about having experience. It's about having understanding. But Proverbs tells us that wisdom isn't about what you know. Wisdom is about who you know. Wisdom is all about knowing God. It begins with him. It's rooted in him because wisdom, by definition, is the imitation. It's the reflection of God's character, of his image, of his attributes. And so what it means to be wise is to reflect and bear the image of God in the way that we live and how we think and what we do. And so wisdom always begins, wisdom is not about who, it's not about, one more time, right? Wisdom then is not about what you know, it's about who you know. But Proverbs has a lot to teach us about what it means to be wise and what it looks like for us to reflect the image and the character of God in lots of different areas and aspects of our lives, whether that's our parenting or our work or our finances or our friendships or how we speak and use words, whether it's how we deal with emotions. There is a ton of really practical, everyday stuff that Proverbs gives wisdom and shows us what it looks like to be wise in. But what we spent the last few weeks talking about in our study of Proverbs is we've been spending the last few weeks talking about the heart. Because what Proverbs teaches us over and over and over and over again is that the, the thing that is going to be the, the barometer of whether we actually become wise or what, whether we stay foolish in any of those areas has to do with what's going on in our hearts. Proverbs 23.19 says, Listen, my son, and be wise. Set your hearts on the right path. Proverbs 4.23 says it this way. It warns us, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I quoted Tim Keller a few weeks ago. He said this, summed it up best, I think. In the Bible, the heart is used as the metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation. The direction of the heart then controls everything. It's our thinking and our feeling and our decision-making and our actions. And so whatever we cherish most in our hearts, whatever we love most controls the whole person. In the end, we always do what our heart wants most. And so because the direction of our heart determines the direction of our lives, what we've been saying over the last few weeks, so we've got to learn to pay close attention to what's going on in our hearts. A lot of times we look at what's happening in our lives and we try to fix the stuff on the surface, but those are just symptoms, Proverbs tells us. They're symptoms of what's really going on on a deeper level in our heart. And if we want to become wise, we need to learn how to diagnose and defend our hearts against the stuff that is, against foolishness, against folly, against, against sin. But Proverbs doesn't just tell us that, that we need to be careful about our hearts. It, it shows us how. It, it gives us wisdom to know how to diagnose what the problems is. And like I said, Proverbs 21, 19, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Proverbs saying that our lives, our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our emotions, that stuff is all just symptoms that reveals what's happening in our heart. They're not the real problem. They're symptoms of the the bigger disease, the bigger thing that's going on in our hearts. And a few weeks ago, we said that, uh, for example, anger, what, what we are most angry about, Proverbs teaches us, it reveals what we love the most. The things that make us most angry reveals the thing that we care about the most. We said anger is really just love in motion. 
to deal with a threat towards the thing that we love. Last week, my friend Jonathan, he talked about pride. Pride is a heart-level issue. He quoted the famous Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards who said, Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It's the first sin that ever entered into the universe, and it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. It is the most secret, the most deceitful, the most unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to mix with everything, and nothing is so hateful to God. Nothing is so contrary to the spirit of the gospel or so dangerous in its consequence. And so there is one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of saints and expose them to his delusions. It is pride. You see, pride, as Jonathan reminded us last week, is about us wanting to be in the place of God. And what happens is we justify that desire by comparing ourselves to others and looking for ways that we are better, looking for ways that we are superior. It's the default mode of every human heart. It's the definition of what it means to be self-righteous. Pride gets worked out in all kinds of ways. Sometimes it leads to anger because someone has pricked our pride, or sometimes it leads to envy because we don't want others to appear better than us, or sometimes it just leads to bitterness because we want to have something to hold over other people. But the one thing that pride always leads to is conflict. The one thing that pride always leads to is conflict. Proverbs 13.10 says it this way. Where there is strife, where there is conflict, there is pride. The two are always linked. They are inseparable. Conflict is something we all deal with because on some level we all deal with pride. This morning as we study the book of Proverbs, we're going to take a look at what Proverbs has to teach us about conflict Conflict is something that every human deals with. In, in, no matter how good we are at dealing with it or not, it's something that we all wrestle with. And Proverbs gives us insight, gives us wisdom to know what it looks like for us to, to reflect God's image and character in the way that we deal with conflict. Proverbs gives us wisdom to help us see what the real source of our conflict is. It gives us wisdom to help helps us see what keeps us from resolving the conflict we find ourselves in. But it also gives us wisdom... To, it shows us what it looks like for us to deal with conflict in a way that is wise. At the heart of our study this morning, what I want us to see is, is that if we, if we want to be wise, if we want to reflect the image of God and his character in the way that we deal, deal with conflict, we need to learn to diagnose and defend our hearts against pride. We need to learn to diagnose and defend our hearts against pride. And so with that in mind, Let's pray, and we'll dive into our study in God's Word this morning. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are thankful for your Word, that you would keep it for us and store for us so that we might study it and that we might know you. God, we are so grateful that you love to reveal your heart to us. And so as we come to your Word this morning, what we just say is, God, we need you. We need you to reveal yourself to us. We need you to make our hearts teachable and moldable so that, so that when we hear it, we, we were able to put ourselves under the authority of your word and be moved by it and be changed by it. And God, what we say is your word has the highest authority in our lives. And so we ask, God, I ask that as I preach and as I teach, that you fill me with your spirit so that what I have to say comes straight from you. And I pray that as we study that you give us hearts that are moldable and shapeable by your spirit. God, we need you as we study this morning. We're so grateful that you promised to meet us in the midst of that need. In your good name, amen. Amen. 
Well, just a brief side note before we continue in our study of Proverbs this morning, thinking about conflict. Normally, when we study about the Bible, we at River City here, we can just go through it verse by verse. And, and the reason for that is, is because we want to be careful to, to study what the Bible has to say and what it meant to the original audience instead of just trying to find out what we want it to mean to us. And so the, the most wise way to do that is to carefully just go verse by verse as we study through it. But you may have noticed if you've been here for a while as we've been studying Proverbs that that's not really how we've been doing Proverbs. And that's because Proverbs is a pretty unique style of literature. And the layout of Proverbs is, is not really that of a single ordered thought, but more of a, a collection of wise sayings. My friend Jonathan, who preached last week, he described it as divinely sporadic, which means there's probably a theme that the Lord wrote in there, but I don't know if anybody can figure out what that theme is. And so the way, that, the way that we go about studying Proverbs is to, is to look for the themes in Proverbs, to look for the things that connect together, to look for the, the ways that the different things have, what they have to say about something. For example, this morning, we're going to be talking about what Proverbs teaches us about conflict. And it might feel like we're jumping around a lot as we talk about different verses in Proverbs, and we are. But that's the way Proverbs is written. And so if you have more questions about that, or if you're trying to figure out what does it look like for you to study the Bible on your own, and you, you're just wondering what that looks like, then come find me after the service. I'd love to talk more with you about that. But this morning, what we're going to talk about is conflict, and three ways that, three things that Proverbs shows us about conflict. Like I said before, it shows us the, the real source of our conflict. Proverbs shows us what keeps us from resolving our conflict, but it also shows us how to deal with conflict wisely. And so let's begin at the beginning. Proverbs shows us the true source of our conflict. Conflict is something that we all deal with. And uh, some of us go looking for it, the foolish, crazy ones of us, right? Most of us, however, we're not trying to find conflict. In fact, most of us are doing everything we can possibly do to avoid it. And yet we still find ourselves in the midst of it more than we want to. And so the question is, how do we get there? If, if we are actively trying to avoid something, how do we still always find ourselves in the midst of it? Well, Proverbs lists a bunch of things for us that, that cause conflict. Verse, Proverbs 10, 12, it says, hatred stirs up conflict. Proverbs 18, 6, the, the lips of a fool bring them strife. I just love, sometimes Proverbs are hilarious. Their mouths, they invite a beating. Just, sometimes it's just brutal honesty, right, in Proverbs? Proverbs 26, 20, it says this way, without wood, a fire goes out, without a gossip. Quarrel dies down. 2621, as charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife, for kindling conflict. Proverbs 2922, an angry person stirs up conflict. A hot-tempered person commits many sins. Proverbs 3033, for as churning cream produces butter and twisting the known produces blood, so stirring up anger produces conflict. Proverbs 28.25, the greedy stir up conflict. Proverbs 16.28, a perverse or a dishonest person stirs up conflict. And a gossip separates close friends. And you're thinking, duh. Yeah. Yeah, of course all those things stir up conflict. Hatred, anger, arguing, greed. God, like, shocker, right? All of those things lead to conflict, right? But Proverbs doesn't talk about these things as the source of our conflict. It lists these as causes, things that are on the surface, things that bring about conflict. But Proverbs, the real question for us that Proverbs wants to answer is what's underneath those things? If you've been here the last few weeks, we've been talking about the heart, and the question is always, what is underneath our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors? What's underneath our bitterness? What's underneath our anger? What's underneath our need to gossip? What's underneath all that stuff? 
If those were just the real problem, the answer is just stop. Just stop being angry. Just stop gossiping. Just stop lying. Just stop, just stop being greedy. The problem is you can't just stop those things because there's something underneath all of those things that's causing all of that. Proverbs gives us wisdom. It says, Proverbs 13.10, where there is strife, where there is conflict, there is pride. Pride is the thing that is under all of it. Pride is the thing that is always at the root of our conflict. In some way, shape, or form, pride is at the bottom. Like Jonathan reminded us last week as he quoted Jonathan Edwards, he said, pride is the sin behind all other sins. And the reason we all experience conflict is, again, because all of us, to some degree, we, we all deal with pride. I was really helped this week by a sermon I listened to by a guy named J.D. Greer. It was, it was really helpful. He said this about pride. I'd really encourage you to listen to that sermon if you have time. He says this, human beings are almost always constantly striving to show that they are better than everyone else. And that's because we are fundamentally insecure. You see, the human condition is that all of us want to call the shots in our lives. We want to play God. And at a very deep level, we all know that this is wrong. And so we are insecure and constantly looking for self-justification. We have to prove that we are all right. And when we are offended, that drive for self-justification, it kicks into hyper mode. And we think, I would never do that, or I'm better than that person. And so we despise people because we need to feel superior to them. And it's our sense of superiority that fuels our anger and it fuels our pride. You see, pride is about comparing ourselves to others to find our value and our worth. And it always leads to conflict because it requires us to focus on ourselves and our need to be superior to others. By finding someone that we think we are better than or an aspect of someone that we think we are superior in or by degrading someone else, what happens is we are trying to establish our own value and worth. Pride is the opposite of fearing the Lord. It's the opposite of wisdom. It is a rejection. It's a rejection of God, and and it's a reliance on ourselves. That's what makes it a rejection of God. Proverbs 8.13 says it this way, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. The Lord hates pride and arrogance. The Lord is so viciously opposed to those things because it it is mutinous rebellion. Pride is saying, God, I don't need you. I will make my own value. I will make my own worth. I don't need it from you. But Proverbs doesn't just tell us that pride is is the true cause. It's the real source of our conflict. Proverbs teaches us that pride is also what keeps us from resolving our conflict. Our pride is the thing that keeps us stuck in the midst of our conflict. That desire that we have to feel superior over others that we all wrestle with, it keeps us in the very conflict that we so badly want to get out from. And what happens is our pride, it keeps us from being able to admit our faults or it keeps us from being able to be told that we're wrong and so we just avoid it, we run from that. For some, pride gets worked out in avoiding conflict. You either just deny any wrongdoing that you have or any fault, or, or you just run away. You're not the yeller. You're the one who lets your feet do the talking. And so when you get offended or when you're in the midst of conflict, you don't, you don't just stay in the midst of it. You just give the cold shoulder. You just walk out of relationships and walk out of friendships. You don't deal with it. You just, you just let your feet do the talking. You let your emotions do the talking, and you just cut everything off. You run. You avoid You avoid talking about the issue at all costs. But running doesn't work because while you might be able to avoid dealing with the the relational immediate aspects of that conflict, what happens is you always deal with the effects of it in your own heart. 
And what avoiding conflict almost always leads to is bitterness. It leads to bitterness in our hearts. It leads to resentment. It leads to animosity. For some of us, our pride gets worked out in avoiding conflict. We, we cannot be told we're wrong. We have, to, we, have to, we have to get out of it. But for others of us, it gets worked out in a more aggressive way. We want to prove. It's not just that we don't want to be told that we're wrong or that we can't admit our fault. It's that, it's that we want to prove that we were right. We want to prove that we were justified in what we did. And we want to make others feel guilty so that we can feel vindicated. I can't tell you how many times early on in our marriage when Hannah would, would just vulnerably tell me something that I, that I did or that I said was hurtful, my first reaction wasn't to just listen and hear that. My first reaction was to explain how it was craziness that that was offensive. Like this, logically, this does not make sense because X plus Y equals whatever. Like it just doesn't science. It can't, it doesn't work that way. You're not allowed to be frustrated about that. And I used to just try to justify that as like, oh, well, I'm just the level-headed reasonable one, right? I just think through things logically. Hannah's emotional, Really what that is, is that was just my pride. That was just my pride because what I didn't want to do was admit that I had a fault. I didn't want to admit that, that at least part of whatever that situation was on me. You see, whether you deal with conflict in a way that's avoiding or in a way that's aggressive, the way that the problem is the same, pride keeps us from being able to admit our sin and our wrong and our role in the midst of it. And Proverbs highlights the effects of the, this one trick that we always use. All of us use, no matter, no matter where we're at in it, we always use this one trick to try to avoid the guilt that we, that we have in the midst of our conflict and to, to feel vindicated. The trick is this, we, we just repeat the matter. Proverbs 17.9 says it this way, Whoever would foster love, they cover an offense, but whoever repeats an offense separates close friends. J.D. Greer, again, just so helpfully this week, he, he highlighted three ways that, that we repeat an offense. Instead of covering an offense, we repeat it. In three ways, he says, one, we, we repay it or we repeat the action or attitude or behavior back to whoever did it to us. They say, we say, you hurt me, so I'm just going to hurt you back. And if we can't do it in the same way that they hurt us, we try to find some other way to get back at them to make them feel hurt the way that we felt hurt. And it might take the form of yelling or it might take the form of a more passive-aggressive type. And whether that's giving the, the silent treatment or the cold shoulder or, or sometimes when we're married, sometimes that just looks like withholding intimacy from that person or just, just making sure that somebody knows that we are really frustrated with them and that their, their actions have consequences. Whatever the case, though, when we are repeating our offense back to them, it, it always starts with small things, and it leads to big things. It happens a little at a time, and it grows and grows and grows. When I was a college freshman, moved into my college dorm, there was, a, I think, a, a couple of sophomores that lived next to me. And uh, one of them had a girlfriend, and their, their relationship I would describe as uh, tumultuous. We'll use that word, tumultuous, right? And, uh, and so there was, there was always lots of noises happening from the room next door. And they would get in arguments, and sometimes they'd be yelling back and forth, and sometimes it would just be like this. You'd know when the argument was over when no one would leave, but there would just be like an hour of total silence, right? Finally, one day, it just kept going, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Finally, one day, the guy had done something. I don't even know what it was, but out of nowhere, I'm sitting in my room, and I hear this huge crash on the floor. We're on the third floor. She had taken a knife 
cut the screen of the window and chucked his Xbox out the third floor window. To top it all off, that was like three days after Halo 2 came out, and it was like 99% of every college sophomore's life to play that game 90% of their day, right? So this girl, she knew what would really hurt this guy. She knew what would really frustrate and what would really get him back for whatever she had done. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't really chuck an Xbox out a third floor window to get back at somebody, right? But what happens is it all starts small. It starts in the little things and the ways that we say and the the ways that we act, but it, it ends in big things. So we repay by repeating the action back to the person who hurt us or offended us. But sometimes we, we repay or we repeat by retelling that action or attitude or behavior to others. And sometimes we repeat it in a, in a gossipy way that's just outright malicious. And sometimes we do it in a more spiritual, more subversive way. Maybe it's through a prayer request, right? It's just asking for us to help, help forgive this person, right, who's really hurt us by very clearly outlining exactly what they've done to hurt us, right? We tell the story to others in a way that makes that person look the worst and often leaves our part out of it. Because slander feels good. It feels really good. Because what you're doing is vindicating yourself. It feels good to vindicate yourself. It feels good to get others on your side. But what's really happening is it's killing your soul. And so we, we repay, we repeat the matter by repeating it back to others, by repeating it back to the person who hurt us, but also, and I think the most insidious way that we do it is that we repay by repeating the action or attitude or behavior. We repay it by repeating it to ourselves. You repeat that action to yourself. You just keep bringing it up over and over and over and over. You keep mulling about it. You keep thinking, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe this person said that. I can't believe this happened. And you just like swirl in the midst of it. Proverbs talks about that as stirring up anger. Proverbs 30, 33 says, For as churning cream produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. When we, when we keep repeating the offense back to ourselves and mulling over it and brooding over it, it feeds sin and it feeds conflict in the future, but what happens is it's breeding pride, it's breeding self-righteousness. When we repeat the matter to ourselves or to others, it just fuels the pride that's lurking in our heart and it, it blinds us to the truth about who we are and about who God really is and it keeps us from being able to forgive. That's the point of the parable of the talents. Jesus talks about this. There's a, a talent is, is a, just a unit of money. And there's this guy who was forgiven an, an innumerable, just this massive debt, like a debt he couldn't pay off in lifetimes. And he's forgiven it. And what happens is then he goes and he finds someone who owes him a very small debt. And he demands it. And he throws this person in jail when they're not able to pay the debt. And the whole point of the proverb is not, oh yeah, this is what happens all the time. The point of the proverb is, that doesn't make any sense at all. Who would do that? And Jesus is like, yes. Now who would? But we all do. Because you see, we, what happens is when we can't forgive, it shows that we have no idea how much we have been forgiven. And it shows that we see ourselves as fundamentally superior to others. See, pride is the real source of our conflict, and it's what keeps us stuck in the midst of our conflict. So the question is, what is the way out? How do we guard our hearts against pride, and how do we act wisely in regards to conflict? 
And Proverbs gives us wisdom about that. And our time this morning, Proverbs isn't this all-encompassing, exhaustive manual for the way that we deal with conflict. And our time together this morning, we don't even have time to cover all of the things that Proverbs talks about with regards to that. But what I want to do is highlight a few of the principles that Proverbs lays out for us as we think about what it means to be wise, what it means to reflect God's image and character as we deal with conflict. And it would first, it always starts with repentance and humility. Proverbs 30, verse 12. Man, there were just, I'm going to read, there's a bunch of verses here this week that were just gut checks from my heart this week. And if if you sense that for your own heart as well, you're in good company. Proverbs 30, verse 12, it says this, those who are pure in their own eyes are not yet cleansed of their filth. Those who are pure in their own eyes are not yet cleansed of their filth. You see, pride keeps us from being willing to acknowledge our own sin and our own error and our own folly, and it blinds us to the truth about who we are. What we need is to have a right view of ourselves if we're going to be able to deal with conflict wisely. We like to believe that we are first sinned against, and maybe a distant, a far distant second, we might be sinners that might have something to do with it, maybe, kind of, possibly, right? But Proverbs 30, verse 12 is telling us, no, the way to peace, the way to dealing with conflict wisely is to remember that we are first sinner, second sinned against. First sinner, second sinner against. Whenever I feel wronged or sinned against or hurt, the invitation is to think about how greatly I have done the very same things to God. When I feel disrespected or ignored or pushed aside, I remember how I've done those very same things to God. When, I, when someone else selfishly puts their own interests in front of mine, I remember how often I do that with the Lord. What happens is we self-righteously think we would never do that to other people. And so we vindicate ourselves by saying we'd, we'd never act this way towards other people. And the, the, the real way to humility is to ask the question, how have we acted towards God? Because the way that we have related towards the king of the universe is so much more incredibly egregious than the way that we would relate to people. It puts us in a spot where we are able to be humble. See, pride makes us want to compare ourselves to others so that we feel superior. But Proverbs says that wisdom comes when we compare ourselves to God. Proverbs 22.4 says it this way, Humility comes in the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. You see, when we see God for who he is, when we see the magnitude of his majesty and of his glory and for all he is and how holy he is and how separate and far above us he is, we see how much we are not like him. And it leads us to a healthy awe and a reverence, but a fear of the Lord, and it gives us a humble spirit. Because the way that we've treated God pales in comparison to the way that we have treated others. And what happens is when we do that constantly, it undercuts our pride, and it makes room for grace. See, self-righteousness is about comparing ourselves to others. It always leads to pride. But the gospel invites us to compare ourselves to the Lord so that we might be filled with grace as we see how much we do not meet up to him, but how greatly he has met us in our need. You see, repentance is about acknowledging our sin. It's about enabling us. It enables us to start fighting back against sin instead of just to run from it. First John 1 John 1.9 says it this way, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. First John's reminding us that the gospel frees us to admit our sin because while we are guilty, we are forgiven. 
The gospel frees us to acknowledge our sin and frees us to confess and frees us to admit our wrong because we're not looking for our identity and value and worth in comparison to others. We're looking for it given from the one who gives it all, given from the king of the universe. And so dealing with conflict it, wisely, it always begins with repentance and acknowledging our own sin, but it also involves us choosing to trust God. Proverbs twenty twenty two says it this way, Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord. He will avenge you. Another proverb says, The greedy stir up conflict, but those who, those who trust the Lord will prosper. See, what happens is we try to take vengeance into our own hands. And when we do that, what we're saying is, God, I do not trust you. I don't trust you to be just. Or like Jonah, sometimes what we're really saying is, God, I know that you are good. I know that you are gracious. And I am worried that you would be gracious to the one I want vengeance on. Proverbs 29, 26 says, Many seek an audience with a ruler, but it's from the Lord that one gets justice. You see, in the midst of conflict, what we want is for someone to agree with us. We want someone to rule in our favor. But Proverbs reminds us that the Lord is the only one who is truly just. He is the one who exercises justice, and he is the one who is righteously just. The Lord is truly just. And in the person... So if that person that we're in conflict with is a Christian, then Jesus has already died for them, just as he died for you and I. And so when they sin against you, there's an opportunity for us to thank God for the way that he has died for the sin that has been committed and how he absorbed the vengeance for, for what that person did. And if that person's not a Christian, well, then God promises one day that he will settle all scores, that he will pay back, that he will bring about justice. And either way, it frees us to trust the Lord, for him to be just, for him to bring about a right exercise of justice. It frees us from bitterness. It frees us from vengeance when we choose to trust him to bring justice and to bring it about. See, the problem is we want justice for others, but we don't want it for ourselves. And the invitation of Proverbs is to let the Lord be the one who is just as we humble ourselves and we admit how much we, we don't want the justice of God for us. <laughs> because if God was just with us, we would pay a big penalty. The invitation of the gospel is that we see God's grace in the midst of it. We let him exercise justice as he would see fit. And when we humbly fear the Lord and we trust him it, it, to be just, it frees us to do what Proverbs 25, 21 says. It says, if your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And, and the first thing that we often hear when we hear that verse is, heap burning coals. That's what I wanted to do in the first place. That was the point. That's, that's yes, let's do the heaping of coals thing, right? That feels like it will hurt. But that's not what the verse is talking about. It's not a, it's not a vengeance. It's not a payback thing. Your goal in heaping coals is not to pay them back, but rather, as one commentator says, to wake them up. When we respond with grace to sin, when we respond with kindness, when someone has sinned against us and hurt us, quite often what happens is that person is confronted with the guilt of what they're doing. It's this wake-up moment, right? Our world has trained us that an eye for an eye, you get what you give, one pays back for the other. And when we respond, when, when, we, when we break that cycle, when we, we respond in opposition towards that, what happens is there's like this wake-up moment. 
kind of shocks you awake almost sometimes. I didn't expect that. Where, what, what was going on there? J.D. Greer again, just so helpfully this week, he said, we think that the way to change somebody is to make them pay or to berate them or to be sarcastic to them. But very few people in the midst of an argument suddenly feel like, oh, you just totally put me in my place. Now that you have yelled at me and berated me, I see the error of my ways. Your deep, sparkling logic has removed my stupidity from me. Let me change immediately. Said no one ever, right? No, nobody responds that way because Proverbs reminds us that wrath stirs up anger, but it's a gracious response that, that calms. See, grace is how we change people, not with wrath. That brings us to the next way that Proverbs shows us what wisdom regarding our conflict looks like. We confess our sin to God. We trust God to be just, but finally, we imitate the character and the image of God. You see, God has responded to our sin with grace. God has responded to our rebellion, to our offense with patience. Proverbs 15.1 says this way, a soft answer or a gracious answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. You see, to respond with grace and patience, the thing most of us really need to do in order to respond that way is to learn to shut our mouths. As much as you hear me saying that to you, know that I'm, I've been preaching that to myself this week. Because <laughs> this is an area I know I need to grow in. Proverbs 10, 19 says it this way, sin, just, sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. And I needed to meditate on that this week. Proverbs 18, 13, to answer before listening is folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 17, in a lawsuit, the first person to speak, they always seem right until somebody comes forward and cross-examines. Proverbs 13, 3, those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly come to ruin. Proverbs 18, 2, fools Fools find no pleasure in understanding. They delight in airing their own opinions. How much of those verses characterize our own hearts? If I'm honest, I feel like a lot more like I'm the fool than I am the wise one. In the heat of the moment, we often say incredibly foolish and hurtful things. There have been countless times when I have needed to come back to others and to apologize for either the, the content or the tone of, of what I have said in the midst of conflict. You see, pride, it keeps us from being able to listen. It leads to, it, pride fuels our anger and it keeps from being able to hear. Proverbs 27.4 says it this way, anger is cruel and fury is overwhelming. What happens in the midst of our conflict, our anger, it just swirls and it it's like this dust up. It's just this cloud that, that clouds our vision from being able to see the reality of what is going on. It clouds our judgment and it keeps us from seeing the truth. Abraham Lincoln, he had this rule throughout his presidency. He called it the 24-hour rule. And whenever he would get a letter, whenever he would get a response from somebody that angered him, he would always wait 24 hours to respond. Or if he responded immediately, he would put the letter back in his desk and wait for 24 hours until he uh, and so he could have space to think about it before he sent it. See, taking space, it helps us to listen, but it also helps us to speak carefully. 
Proverbs 14.3 says, A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. Proverbs 12.18, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise, it brings healing. Proverbs 17.27, The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Proverbs 15.28, The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the fool gushes evil. When we think about the way that we have dealt with pride, how often are these verses, do they, how often do they, give, do they give eyes for us to see how so much of it comes from our own hearts and from the pride that we just let flow out of us that results in anger and it results in foolishness. It results in, in hateful words. It results in anger and bitterness and, and the things that you say. For me, sometimes I can be quick-witted and so I can say things or I know what will just point at somebody, just jab them right in the midst of it. And so because I can think quickly sometimes, I know exactly what will just jab right in the midst of it. It, will, it feels like this, this, this just landing a great punch. And Proverbs says it's a fool who lashes out. It's a wickedness that flows out of our mouths. But rather, it's the, right, the righteous are characterized by one who weighs their answers. I think many of us, what we need to learn how to do is just to quiet ourselves. To shut our mouths so that we might make space to listen. What happens is when we make space to listen and to carefully consider our words, what we're doing is we're making space for God's spirit to be the one that is guiding us instead of our own pride. I just want to be clear here. What I'm not just advocating for is like, hey, just breathe for 10 minutes and you'll be fine, right? Or just, just, just think about it for a day. You can think about it for 21 hours or 24 hours, and it can just get worse, right? Just taking space is not the solution. What we're doing is we're, we're making space and asking God that he might speak the truth into our hearts. We're asking him to, we're taking space so that he might, his wisdom might pervade our hearts so that the way that we respond is characterized by his attitudes, by his actions, by his character, and not our own. What happens when we make space is that we make space to remember how much we needed grace so that we can extend grace as well. Sometimes that happens in what we say. Proverbs 16, 24, it says this way, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. A gentle answer, it turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. But a perverse tongue, it crushes the spirit. See, the way that we change people is, is not with our wrath overflowing, but it's by when we respond to sin, when we respond with grace in the midst of it. The way that Proverbs calls us to deal with conflict, most often, four times it says this. It, it characterizes the vast majority of what Proverbs has to say about conflict. It says, the way that we imitate the character of God and act wisely in the midst of conflict is when we overlook an offense. Proverbs 17.9 says it this way, whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Proverbs 10.12, fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent, they overlook 
and insult. Proverbs 12, 16, fools show, um, uh, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Proverbs 19, 11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It's one's glory to overlook an offense. Overlooking or covering, that, that, that word that's translated in both of those is the same Hebrew word in both cases. And what it's not talking about is glossing over an issue where you just pretend it didn't happen, where you just like, you just forget about it. You just try to like magically just like, just, hey, that, this didn't happen. There's no issues. Nothing is wrong. That's not what overlooking or covering offense is. The word cover, covering or, or overlooking, what it really means is to absorb. You absorb or you pay yourself the offense that was committed. Proverbs 32.1, it says, uses the same word when it says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sins are overlooked, whose sins have been absorbed. You see, to cover sin is not to disregard it. It's not to ignore it. As one commentator writes, overlooking or covering is about pardoning. It's about removing guilt of wrongdoing as an extension of hiding or covering. Becky Moore, I think, just wisely said, I remember her, I think it was in a marriage retreat when she said that overlooking an offense is, is characterized by choosing to intentionally forget, by giving the gift of the benefit of the doubt, and by not storing up hurt for ammunition later. You see, what happens when we, overlooking is not just disregarding something. It's not just saying it never happened or it didn't exist. When you try to do that, what you always end up with is bitterness because it really did happen. It really did hurt. There really was sin there. It always leads to bitterness, but rather overlooking an offense, absorbing the sin of others for their good and for the good of relationships. That only comes when we understand how much God in Christ has done that for us. See, it's possible when we embrace the truth that Jesus overlooked our offense, that Jesus covered our offense, that we're able to cover or to overlook the offense of others. Romans 3, 23 through 25, it says it this way, For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word is the New Testament version of covering. It's the New Testament version of overlooking. By, a, by his blood, by, by receiving by faith. You see, Jesus didn't ignore our sin. He died for it. He covered it. He absorbed it. He paid for it. He was our propitiation. That's a fancy theological word. What it means is that God absorbed, that Jesus absorbed God's wrath due our sin. Jesus covered us. He covered us so that he might absorb God's wrath. That was due our sin. Jesus was our propitiation. He was our covering. He was our absorption. So that instead of being in conflict with God, we could be called his sons and his daughters. Do, do you see the magnitude of that? Do you see the weight of, of what those verses are saying for us? If we don't get that on a heart level, we will always be plagued by conflict. We will never be able to repent. We will never be able to really forgive. And we'll be stuck in the midst of pride and vengeance and bitterness. But when our hearts are melted by Jesus' grace for us, 
by his willingness to overlook our offense, to absorb our offense, the magnitude of which is so much far greater because we haven't just sinned against another person. We have rebelled. We have rejected. We have sinned against the king of the universe. When our heart is melted by what Jesus has done for us, by his absorbing love, by his love that has covered over us, it's only then that we'll be able to imitate him and to overlook, to cover the sin of others. You can see that that's the truth that we remember and that we celebrate every week when we take communion. And we do it every week because we forget. We get caught up in our pride and we forget that we needed Jesus' body to be broken for ours. We get caught up in our pride and we forget that we needed Jesus' shed blood so that we could be forgiven. We forget how much we needed Jesus and we forget how greatly Jesus has met our need. And when we take the drink together, what we're doing is reminding ourselves and each other that it was Jesus' blood that was shed for us as he paid the penalty that our sin deserved, that our sin that separated us from God, that he paid it so that we might be in right relationship with him. And when we, when we take the bread together, what we're doing is reminding ourselves that Jesus' body was broken for us, that he absorbed the penalty, that he absorbed the wrath of God that was due our sin so that we might have a right relationship with him. That God, that we would be credited with his wisdom, with his righteousness, with his godliness, so that we might be in right relationship with God. And so as we take communion, what we're doing is proclaiming the gospel. What we're doing is preaching to ourselves and to one another, because it's the gospel that uproots pride in our hearts and replants grace. It's the gospel that uproots our need for superiority and it replants it with a humility and a dependence on the Lord. And it's the gospel that uproots our hard And brittle hearts, full of self-righteousness and full of pride, and it replaces them with soft ones that are characterized by a fear of the Lord and awe of Him and a humility that comes from receiving God's grace. You see, it's the gospel that changes us. It's the gospel that enables us to reflect the image and the character of God in the midst of conflicts. I just need you to hear this. No strategy is going to work. No amount of willpower is going to be the fix for the conflict that you have. No amount, no system, no, no great wisdom is going to be the thing that's going to fix what's going on in our hearts. What we need is the gospel to give us new hearts that root out pride and replace it with humility. That only comes from Jesus giving it to us as we see his love for us, as we see his grace extended for us, as we see how much we needed it, just like everyone else. And that gives us the ability to extend grace in the midst of hard things. So the invitation for us this morning as we think about conflict is to set our eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to him, the one who has forgiven us the one who has covered over our offense. Maybe you're in the midst of conflict right now, and you realize that you have been approaching it in a way that, that characterized, that's probably just characterized by foolishness or even evil. The invitation is to let God's word seek deep in your heart so that you might be able to repent. Maybe to acknowledge your sin and your own pride Ask God to give you a gentle heart and a calm heart. Ask him to allow you to see how much you needed his grace so that you might be able to extend grace towards others. Choose to trust him. 
We love to believe that we are really the most just and that if we, could, if we have the power to exercise justice the way that we think it should be done, that it would result in the best. But the, the reality is that when we get the chance to exercise justice, what we do is we exercise vengeance, not justice. We don't actually bring about what is true and right and good. We bring about what brings about our best. So the invitation is for us to see Jesus who laid down his life for us, who covered our offense, who absorbed our wrong so that we might go free, so that we might not be in conflict with God but be right with him. That's the thing that frees us in the midst of it. Some of you guys are in the midst of conflict right now. Or some of you have been carrying around bitterness and vengeance and you just don't know how to forgive. You just don't know how to get over it. You, no matter what you do, you can't deal with it. The invitation, I think, is just to come and to be with Jesus. To ask him that he might fill you with his heart. That his grace made known to you might change you who you are. That as you experience it, as you experience his grace made known to you, it would transform who you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come to you this morning. God, we are so grateful for you. God, we are thankful that you wouldn't let us stay in conflict with you, but rather you came so that we might have a right relationship with you. God, on the cross, you absorbed our offense. God, you overlooked it. You didn't just ignore it, but you absorbed it. You paid it yourself. God, I pray that as we cherish you, as we see how much that means to us, as that truth melts our hearts, God, I pray that it would transform us so that we're able to do the same to others. God, give us wisdom to reflect your image and your character. God, as we think about dealing with conflict, for those of us who are in the midst of it right now, who feel overwhelmed by it, who feel stuck in it, God, I pray that your spirit might speak a word of grace and peace and calm. God, I pray that you give us the humility to acknowledge our own sin and repent. God, I'm so grateful that the gospel frees us to, to admit our sin because in the gospel we're forgiven, we're not condemned. God, I pray that, that you would free us from guilt, from shame, that you'd free us from vengeance and bitterness, that you'd free us from pride so that we might reflect your image and your character to our world and to our relationships. God, we say we, we cannot do it on our own. We need you. So God, be our light, be our vision, be our hope, be the thing we long for most. Help us see ourselves rightly so that we might worship and live for you rightly. In your good name, amen.